This is Mentor, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. Each Thursday, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stats you can trust, here we go. So this week, I'm talking to Kate and Rich from Index Media. It's a progressive online media company that they've recently started together and with a few other people they know. And it's something that I'm quite invested in, the their media as a kind of future of where online is going. I've talked a bit previously about my concerns around social media and how that influences mental health. So I hope sites like Index Media are, to some extent, the antidote to these things. Um, also, it's super exciting because Kate is my cousin, so it's the first time I've ever had a family member on the podcast. And out of all of them, it's a delight that it's her because she's for a long time been the family member I feel most comfortable talking to about mental health. So it's, yeah, so it's just been a delight to speak to her today and just hear a bit more of her story because often when we speak to family, we can be drawn in by telling a certain narrative and everything's focused on whether you're doing good or whether you're not doing good. So it's nice to get a bit of that kind of background of her story that she may not otherwise tell me in in this way. She may not otherwise give me that chronological, here's what happened for me growing up. But anyway, that's me personally, why I find the episode interesting. In terms of topic, we are talking about fear of talking about mental health. We're talking about the general stigma of it. We're talking about... um, why people can often feel the inclination to hide it. Um, So we try and unpack a little bit where that comes from and how both Rich and Kate have dealt with that experience themselves and come past it. So before we get into the episode, I just have two stats I wanted to highlight relevant to what we talk about. At one point, Kate mentions where you fit in society as a factor in mental health. And I just had a look at one in terms of socioeconomically from mentalhealth.org.uk. They found children and adults living in households in the lowest 20% income bracket in Great Britain are two to three times more likely to develop mental health problems than those in the highest. It's interesting because it feels a bit like what it builds on what Kate mentioned about feeling lucky to come from a background where she could access uh, private counselling, for example. But it's interesting that this stat brings it even further and says actually where you fit socioeconomically is also affecting whether you have a mental illness in the first place, not just how you receive treatment. Also, we talked very briefly about uh, work and how that can be a factor and how Index as an organisation is really trying to be a pro-mental health workplace. So I found also from mentalhealth.org.uk that mixed anxiety and depression has been estimated to cause one fifth of days lost from work in Britain. So there are just a few that I found particularly relevant here and something to think about. So in a moment, we'll get into the episode. But first, this week's Audible recommendation. I'm recommending Never Greener by Ruth Jones. You may know her as the co-writer of Gavin and Stacey, and she also played the character of Ness or Vanessa in that as well. Um, But outside of that, Ruth Jones is also a writer, and I recently finished reading this book of hers. One of the reasons I wanted to recommend it is whilst it's a really interesting story about... um, So it's fiction, it's about love, it's about characters going through their lives and how this changes as they grow older. Um, It's really interesting fiction reading, but also it's the best thing I've read recently in terms of representing mental health. So the main character in it, um, Kate, I think her mental health and how she deals with that is really accurately portrayed in a way that isn't just like a narrative ploy. It feels three-dimensional, it feels authentic, and so definitely I want to see more of that. 
If this book sounds anyway interesting to you, uh, or if you're a fan of Ruth Jones, do take a look and you can get it for free if you join Audible with our link bit.ly slash mentalbooks. The link and details are in the description for this episode. Okay, my name is Kate and I'm the culture editor for Index. And I guess my issues with mental health feel like they started when I was about 14. And I kind of went from being like pretty content and happy, confident, like good at school, engaged with various like extracurricular activities and interested in lots of different subjects and my friends and all that kind of stuff, really positive stuff. And then in a matter of about two weeks, when I turned 14, just started to change and became very kind of withdrawn. Um, I would separate myself from people a lot and hide away a lot and kind of just generally felt really bad about myself. And that all happened really quickly. Like I say, over over a summer, I remember. It was pretty, pretty crap summer. <laughs> um, so... The main kind of defining feature of it, though, is that I really felt ashamed of it, I think. And I felt like there was something wrong with me. I felt really weird and uncomfortable. And so I just pretend it wasn't happening, even though it was really clear. It would come out in lots of different ways. So, like I said, withdrawing from social things, also just feeling really angry, acting out at home. And then obviously that would lead to kind of like typical teenage behavior, like staying out late and drinking alcohol Mm -hmm. a lot, which isn't in and of itself a bad thing, but... I think it can be done in a, like, worrying way. And, yeah, I guess to some extent, like, that was all exacerbated by a kind of difficult home situation because my family, who were really loving and great, um, but my dad had some issues with alcoholism, and then that all came to a head when he died suddenly when I turned... I was just about to turn 19, so I was away at university. Um, And even still then, so we were talking... It started when I was 14... And then I'm 19, and even then I was still hiding it, so it was very suppressed and very kind of like, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm fine, even though it's quite obvious there's something, something going on. And I think it was only two years after that, so when I was 22, so three years maybe, actually a family member organised some therapy for me. So I've been in therapy now since then. So I've actually turned 27, so that's five years. And even throughout that, and that's been a huge help, I had I think what I would describe as a kind of breakdown a year and a half ago um just I can't really describe it in any way often like when I've described it and I have done this with friends before and a lot of my friends are really supportive um but some people just won't get it (laughs) they don't really believe me but probably partly because a lot of the time I was pretending that it wasn't happening yeah but I felt just like I had zero self-worth I just thought it was I hated myself um, it's interesting what you said about your friends because I think that's quite common. It's part of the human experience that we like to reduce people down to one thing. And so if you're pretending to be happy and you're smiling through it, then people want to stick to that. So if they then find out the opposite, it's like how can they reconcile that when they've decided you're that one thing? Mm-hmm. And but actually that's not the reality and you don't have to be dealing with mental illness to be a multifaceted person to mm-hmm. be experiencing multiple emotions through your day that's human totally I don't even believe really in, in the self as, a, as a, a constructed fixed thing so to me on a daily basis you're kind of shifting between all these various identities I think Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're totally right. Actually, one friend in particular who's known me since I was 13, um, and who I completely understand feeling sort of confused by it or not quite getting it, but she even said to me, like, you know, if it was true, you were hiding it very well. It's mm-hmm. like, yes, you've, you've literally described exactly what I was doing. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It's quite a universal um, mental health trait, though, isn't it? That ability to hide it. And I saw a campaign not long ago on Twitter where people were sharing, I can't remember what the hashtag was, but they were sharing pictures where they'd gone back on their camera roll to some of their worst times Mm -hmm. in terms of their mental health and found all these pictures of them smiling and they were putting up these just to highlight how 
easy it is to fake and how you, you build up seemingly a skill in that when you're yeah. dealing with mental illness. Yeah, and I think like I had kind of the best example of that in my dad who on the face of things was very I don't think anyone else really knew the extent of his issues mm-hmm. and he very much hid those and was very ashamed of them. It was all about pride and male pride and I think I picked up on a lot of that as a kid, kind of um, subconsciously, and it just kind of fed into this sense that you know it's, you're not it's not you're not allowed to feel this way. Um, so yeah, it's all just been a bit volatile, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And the way you described it, going from like fourteen to where you are now, other than when you started. Um, having therapy it didn't seem like there was much of a break it was like non-stop yeah quite relentless I think that there was a a kind of arrested development as well it kind of affected all areas so even when I went to university and because I was lacking in so much confidence I didn't know how to achieve like now for instance I'm about to go and do my masters um I'm obviously writing for Index and I write as part of my job as well Mm -hmm. in the charity sector and that's what I love doing and I'm very confident with it now but at the time even though I kind of had that somewhere some kind of ability to do that there was no belief that I could actually do it Mm -hmm. and so like my undergraduate degree was very much just getting away with doing as little as I could in order to pass but not not even so much out of laziness it's just a sheer anxiety that it wasn't going to turn out well. (laughs) I think that's really common, particularly in education um, with people dealing with anxiety. It can seem easier to put it off rather than start something they've convinced themselves will be worthless anyway. Yeah. And I think it's also just a a thing of... I think every day just feeling like I've just got to get through... This, I've just realised I've just quoted Daniel Bedingfield, <laughs> <laughs> the icon that Daniel Bedingfield is. Um, but it's true, like, and ironically, the year after my dad died, I kind of decided to cope with that by drinking. Like, you could get two bottles of wine for five quid around the corner from where I lived in London, and like, that's what I would do most nights with my housemate. Um, God, it was absolutely disgusting wine. <laughs> As you can it's like it's, it's not rosé it's just pink wine <laughs> yeah god knows what was in it but yeah that and it was almost just I didn't even realize at the time but that's just like the way of like getting through it I guess because you're trying to figure out about what's actually going on in your head yeah it's emotional distancing and that seems to be you know we had a whole episode on addiction and that seemed to be a lot of what it came down to was a way of um, I guess Charles Edison just separating himself from his emotions mm-hmm. um, and then he'd try and come off them and then he'd think oh well I'll just have you know here or whatever um, just to, to help me with this to mm-hmm. help get off the drugs he was taking drugs right yeah um, and so obviously that was not an easy process yeah but it's weird as well because um, and both Rich and I like the way we met was working in the third sector and we work closely to a programme that deals with those kind of issues. So I think we both have a bit of an understanding mm-hmm. and both have personal experience in our families of addiction. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's weird because it kind of, in a way, it's rational because I'm, like, I would have enabled my dad at points by buying him booze, literally going to get it for him. Because you see them struggling so much that you just, you just want to do anything to help them. And in that moment, helping them is giving them kind of that crutch that they're used to. Do you know what I mean? And I think I struggled with guilt yeah. about that for a long time. I think but that's difficult. Now I kind of think, what? what and I think when <laughs> someone's hiding it to such an extent, even their family can fall for it. Mm-hmm. And you can start to see the difference between your dad um, when he has had a drink and when he hasn't. And so it can be easy to like blur the lines of like what's actually good for him. Yeah, yeah. I think I knew... I think I was aware, though, from quite a young age that, like, there was him in different moods. And then as I got older, I realised that that was related to alcohol. And then I think that... I I don't even think that I felt like the lines were blurred because I didn't really like him when he was drunk. It It was more that thing of literally just seeing someone in pain. I don't know if you've ever seen someone who's addicted to anything... I don't know, the only thing I can compare it to is because I've 
trying to quit smoking now. <laughs> like, if you really want a fag, you really want a fag. But obviously that doesn't have, like, the same effect as um, harder, well, harder substances. Uh, we'll just pause there for a moment. Rich, uh, one of Katie's colleagues at Index, is also here and has been very quietly nodding along. So do you want to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, my name's Rich. Um, I'm the managing editor um, of Index Media. Um, I also work um, in the charity sector in Birmingham um, at the same place as Kate. Um, I'll tell you a quick uh, synopsis of, of my experience with mental health. Um, I, for a long time, I thought it what just sort of happened, you know, like at a certain age on a certain day and you can, you think that you can pinpoint it. Um, the older I get, the more I start to think that, that there were always shades of it, mm-hmm. you know, from the start. Um, so let me, um, having said that, let me start where I thought it started, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So um, I come from a working class sort of rural background. Uh, my family are pretty like salt of the earth sort of people. Um, I was always uh, able to do things as a kid and pick things up pretty quick. Um, and that culminated in me sort of going to university, winning a scholarship uh, to go to university and in Sheffield. And then from there, I went and did my second year in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, at the University of Oklahoma, which was a real sort of experience, you know, like I think I wrote in the uh, in the form that you sent beforehand. It was like living in an American Pie for like a year, basically. <laughs> um, um, I was loving life. I was extremely uh, like kind of confident. I'm, I'm putting sort of uh, quite so yeah. We can't say. Um, <laughs> I I wouldn't say I was cocky, um, but I thought I was invincible because life I had just taken off on some next trajectory, basically. <laughs> for that reason, um, I was burning the candle at both ends, for sure. Um, so on the one hand, I was still trying to do well academically and sort of meet these sort of high expectations um, that I had of myself on the other side of things. You know, I was living a real sort of uh, debaucherous lifestyle at night. And over, I mean, I was there for a year pretty much, and pretty much halfway through, we say five months in, I had been out the night before, um, and I was in my flat on my own. Um, But it was student accommodation, so usually there was four of us, say, in the flat. But I was there on my own that night, and I was watching TV. I'll always remember it. And I experienced a panic attack, basically, out of the blue, that I'd never had anything, you know, felt anything like it before. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I was having a heart attack, which uh, I don't know if that's a common thing, but for me, it definitely, you know, yeah, I felt From that. what I know it is, if you've not experienced one before. Yeah, it was pretty serious. Um, that was in the evening. Of, of, I think it was, say, like a Saturday night, right? And I was very miffed by it all. Woke up the next day and I felt the same. I just didn't feel right. I felt like uncomfortable in my own skin. And at that time then, waking up the next day, had you any idea what had happened the night before? Or no, nothing at all. Nothing at all. Okay. Um, and this, this is like the elephant in the room about the fact that I was literally on the other side of the world. Literally from like the most kind of opposite background you'd normally expect to end up somewhere like that when you're 20 years old. So I, I guess similar to Kate, like you don't, you're not fully aware of it. There's, I had nobody to bounce off. I couldn't just like being Mr. Alpha Male come out and be like, oh, guys, I kind of tricked myself into thinking I was having a heart attack last night. You know, like it. For me, it just didn't. It didn't seem like an option, and I didn't. Quite it almost understand. sounds like you're describing it as being off-brand. That it would, yes. in some way, it didn't fit undermine in. who you were. Absolutely, um, I think also the fact it terrified me. I had no idea. I didn't want to admit to myself, but I think deep down, I was thinking, God, you know, I don't know what's happening next. I don't know what to do. I'm not feeling right. My family's thousands of miles away. I'm halfway through this experience. It's not like I'm going home in a few weeks. Um, and I have this caricature to, to, to keep up, right? Mm-hmm. To everybody else, or at least I thought I did. 
Anyway, so the next morning, this is where it really sort of took off. The next morning, um, my friend, I was friends with like an older, like more responsible guy, to be mm -hmm. fair. And he came over. I said, I'm not feeling right. He says, oh, I'll take you to the doctor. He came and he picked me up. And I'll always remember this. He was driving to the, to the, to the doctors. We got to the doctors. I had like the basic, you know, like your blood pressure, your heart rate, that sort of stuff. Um, and I'll always remember this. The lady was like, oh, you might actually be having a heart attack. And obviously oh that, my God. that just set me off. Obviously. And she said it that casually. Kind of, yeah. She's like, yeah, I'm going to ring an ambulance because like, you might be having a heart attack. And then my mate was like, don't ring an ambulance. We're going to like race there. So I rem I'll always remember this. I and remember this was at the GP or? The equivalent of a GP, like a student uni-based mm. GP. Okay, yeah. Um, and the nurse, I don't know who it was, some lady told me I was having a heart attack. And the next minute I remember, I was in my friend's car, racing down to the hospital, right? I didn't know what on earth was going on. Basically, I just started having another panic attack, like a well, that's what I would mega expect. panic attack. Right? <laughs> I was going to say, what did she think was going to happen? And you were going to be like, yeah, bright as rain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have no idea. But I just remember um, holding on to like the dashboard of my mate's car. Mm -hmm really hyperventilating, um, I pretty much passed out in the car. I thought I was dying, you know, and I don't know what was going on in my brain at that point. I imagine it was experiencing real trauma because I was convinced that just like that, 24 hours before I was fine, and that was it, you know, like life might be over. I know it sounds mad, but I was but just going off what happen. I was... It can happen, in your you know? mind can easily go to that most extreme place. Absolutely, and I think when, when, a, when a health professional is telling you stuff like that, it, yeah, it makes it difficult. So, long story short, I went to the hospital. Obviously, I was not having a heart attack. I got a bill for $15,000. Wow. Yeah, which oh I'm sure God. we'll talk about in a bit. So all this stuff was like layering up, right? I still don't know what's going on as well. I think that's the side. And so when you were at the hospital, did they just say you were fine or did they, did yeah. they suggest they were that like, there oh. a panic attack or anything? No, they didn't even suggest that, which I found not looking back. But at the time, I didn't know what a panic attack was. It all makes I mean? me delighted to be in this country, to be honest. Yeah, mate, yeah. Well, then again, I've got a few things to say about how how it's treated in this country as well. For the sake of the the storyline, as it were. Yeah, right that's pretty mad one. Um, so then you go back to your college dorm or whatever. And, yeah. And you still have no insight into what's happened? No. So I book an appointment with like the... The, doc, not the student doctor or whatever. The same one you went to the first time? Same place with different person. Okay. Might even be worse what they said to me. Basically, um, goes in and I had some blood tests done mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I remember going back a few weeks later uh, and the, the different doctor, um, he said, we've got your results back. Um, you've, your thyroid hormones are, are high. Mm -hmm. um, I thought, okay, fair enough. Then he says, oh, we think you've got something called Graves' disease. And I was like, okay. And I was like, is there anything I need to do? He says, no, like, we're going to take some more blood today. Come back in a few weeks. Goes home. First thing, obviously, I Google Graves' disease, mm, which sad. is a pretty nasty disease, as it turns it's out. It's got the worst name as well. Yeah, it's... Uh, I, I can't quite remember the details, but I remember reading some really horrific things where I was like life expectancy of like you know 45 or something like this and again like my whole world was turning around you know like um and so how long was it after all of this that you you found out what was really going on i kind of lived this horrible existence where for like two or three weeks where i was like okay i'm sure i'm dying for sure i've just got to like work out which which way I'm dying? Do I have grave disease? Is it my heart? You know, you know what I'm saying? But that's what your yeah. mind does. But how, how much is that? Sorry to jump yeah. in. But is that, was that anxiety then? It must have been, yeah. for sure. The whole thing was. Um, so but I didn't find that. mental rather than... Of course, yeah. Um, there are, I think there are like some thyroid issues like in my family. Um, but the thyroid levels, the fact I don't have an issue now. Right. And that's how I found out that it was... It was my mental health because I took these beta blocker things and I slowed down a lot in a good way. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought, wow, I feel a lot better. Then I had that sense of some sort of semblance of mental clarity and I clocked it and I was like, you know, okay, if this is probably mental health. And, and probably from that point, yeah, um, which was about halfway, it was early 2013. Yeah. 
Okay, and so at this point, had you talked to family or any other friends than that one? Not really. Um, I I just kind of broke down the two situations I explained to you earlier, like with getting rushed to hospital and getting told that I had Graves' disease. I didn't tell my mum and dad that they told me I, they thought I had this, this Graves' disease thing because I Googled it and was like, you know, like, how am I supposed to tell them? I'm not over Skype, you know, like... Um, looking back the overriding thing I'll take from it is is that it so happened this perfect storm happened pushed me over the edge and simply because of like my situation at the time where I was geographically more than anything else and this image I had of myself uh, I thought that, that this sort of guy with no chinks in his armor was the only guy who could survive and the only version of me that could survive in America right so I had this whole thing going on and ultimately I kind of completely tried to deal with it on my own and like hide it mm-hmm. I never told a soul in America what was happening for like six months after I can relate to that so much like having this idea of almost like a picture of who you're supposed to be and it's half based on who you were because you're like I just want to get back to that and half based on some fantasy of who you need to be or perhaps based on what you're picking up externally mm-hmm. and the whole time that you're focusing on that and just trying to be that every day not only is it exhausting number one because you're constantly playing a part but it also means that you're not actually focusing on the issue itself and doing anything to solve that or find ways you can't solve the issue sorry that's bad terminology but find ways to deal with it which I think I've done there are lots of different ways but now as a result of like therapy and medication those are the two things combined for me mm-hmm. that have helped me kind of develop like approaches to handling it yeah but yeah definitely mm-hmm. relate to like just trying to be this other thing it was almost that it was so overwhelming that there was no way I could even grasp it or be aware of, of, of it I couldn't look at it from a bird's eye view I didn't really set myself up with anybody to bounce my situation off for someone to be like oh it's mental health oh yes yeah. it's know. a form of emotional distancing and it's interesting what you said Kate about trying to get back to mm. a previous version of you because I think it can be easy when um you start having mental health um issues or you become aware of them for the first time and they may not actually be that new um it can be easy to think oh well I was fine then mm-hmm. if I only just get back to that version of me but then actually one thing I found is that when I had my depression diagnosis, um, I looked back a lot of my life and I realised that I'd had that for as long as I could remember, but I didn't know what it was. Mm. That's something you can relate to as well. Yeah, like Rich said at the beginning, um, you pinpoint this one time, which we both have done in Mm -hmm. our descriptions, that it became especially pronounced. But looking back, like there were times when I was probably as young as like four that I can remember just having these periods of like real darkness mm-hmm. um that sounds a bit dramatic but it's true like having just lots of like intense thoughts about I think death <laughs> a lot yeah. um and then again when I was 10 I think just having like a, a couple of months where just feeling like low and scared and it would get worse in the evening and even and then feeling like I can't talk to anyone about this just got to be normal which I think is a really weird thing to think of, like a kid having to do. Do you know what I mean? And I guess it is changing a bit now in terms of, I feel like in the last couple of years, mental health has become this big issue as a society that we're trying to grapple with, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, well, because we yeah. have to all make an effort at it. You know, we can't expect the kids, the youngest in our society, to learn that it's best in the best interests of their health to be open about how they're feeling when the adults around them aren't doing that. And I think kids are very good from whatever age at comparing other people and comparing themselves to their family and things like that. Mm -hmm. And they see these inconsistencies. So if they're feeling something that other people aren't expressing, oh, well, that must be something wrong with me. Yeah. Because I've expressed things in the past and then been told off for them because that's not right. Yeah, because it doesn't fit what's expected of you. And I should mention as well, I'm speaking about these issues as someone who's, I'm from a privileged position, I'm from a middle class background, I'm white, and 
economically, you know, like I've had therapy and medication, both of these things cost money. Um, and also to some extent are, are just potentially more available to me because I think, I can't remember the statistics, I don't know if you do, Rich, but yeah, I'm speaking about this from a privileged perspective. Um, it's potentially a lot harder for people of different demographics, i.e. non-white people, non-middle-class people. Um, weirdly, with, I think, mental health stuff as well, although I suffer to some extent because I'm a woman and within a patriarchal society, women will always be like lesser well-off, but I think there is something which is coming out in our conversation actually around masculinity and this kind of hyper-masculine expectation put on men. Um, I think to some extent I weirdly picked up on that from my dad <laughs> and seemed to adopt it. And I think I think some of what you're saying, Rich, has come from like this this need in that American all star environment mm, for sure. <laughs> to be like, yeah. And how I had um, like my journey in terms of like my own personal experience where I sort of ended up in in the States insofar as it was all kind of, as I said, like an upward trajectory. I said I felt invincible. Everything was going so well. The, the way you described that originally when you started talking about moving to America, it seemed very much like something had come into your life that you never expected. And you got so into that then that maybe you lost yourself a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you the truth. I never even expected to, to go to university in England, mm-hmm. never mind um, within nine months of starting there being told that I could go to America and like I I got offered to play football or soccer mm-hmm. there as well so I had this extra incentive you know like I'd gone from living in a little village at the age of 18 and not experiencing too much outside my very small little boundaries in Derbyshire mm-hmm. to living on the other side of the the world you know within probably about a year I attributed all that to like taking life uh, or interpreting life through a very masculine prism if you know what I'm saying by that so everything's about goals and achieving and you define your own worth by your external success and for me I find that quite a masculine I'm say it's a male thing it's more of a masculine thing if you see the difference. I think that's the way it's presented to us. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, it's something I've noticed quite a lot, um, even in examples like I've interviewed for staff in the past. And something I notice a lot is that men take more ownership of their achievements that women will do in an interview scenario. So they're more likely to be um, saying I a lot whereas women Mm -hmm. will talk about we and being part of a team more Mm -hmm. Um, and it's you know there's been studies into that as well it's not just me that's noticed it Um, in terms of how you went from having that caricature at uni and being a certain type of uh, hyper masculine guy how were you able to reconcile that with um, mental illness in your identity Um, through a lot of pain and suffering that uh, after a number of years, I slowly I became aware that, as I say, looking at life through a certain prism was causing me a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. But it's not as simple as it might like kind of appear to be like, oh, these are the things that have been causing me issues. You know, like you were saying, I, I fully agree with what you're saying about how. Uh, men often say I've achieved this and I've achieved that ironically when something like mental health happens the ownership it's like the opposite end of the spectrum it was for me anyway Mm -hmm. and I was like I couldn't even deal with this this was throwing too much of a spanner into the works you know like my yeah so it felt like you to something that had had come out of nowhere at you rather than from within yeah and I had no I don't know whether if I had um, really started acutely feeling mental health in, in England if I say I've done my second year in Sheffield I don't know how differently it might have gone but I know the fact that for six months I I just felt so compelled to cover it up to everybody I think that set in a pattern that lasted years and as I, as I say there was no sort of magic bullet for, for coming around to it and realising mm-hmm 
um, this kind of this masculinity that was keeping it. I'd say it's a perverse masculinity. I wouldn't even say it's a genuine masculinity. But in my well, case, whenever it's it some way put on, you know, you were consciously doing it, absolutely, and it's difficult for it to then be authentic. Yeah, it's on purpose. I think a lot of it um, comes from my sort of formative. I want to say formative experiences. I say that. I can't formative experience up to 20, 21, mm-hmm. whatever. And as I say, I'm not like from a super poor background or anything like that, but um, culturally, you know, like we are very working class. I'm first in my whole extended family to, to apply for uni. Not many people leave the area, um, although it's a bit different now, obviously. Um, what I'm saying is on this kind of new life that I took on where I went to a decent uni, and met all these new people and stuff like I didn't realise at the time but I was extremely alienated by the whole process and I don't know whether this masculine caricature sort of came in, in response to that because I was embarrassed that like people's grandparents come and visit them in my dorms mm-hmm. and you know so-and-so's granddad's a knight of the realm so-and-so's granddad's a sir like my grandparents no chance getting them up never mind you know like it, stuff like that is very I am playing the victim here it's just the way it was and I think in response to that because I felt I had nothing to show anybody else in these new environments that wasn't me or mine or my achievement or something mm-hmm. I think this big you know, like you say this big character defined by mm-hmm. is that something now in the work you do you can find yourself slipping into no no. No, so that's very um, much in the past now. Yeah, and for me, that's a sign that, that hopefully I've turned a corner with it. Um, but I can... I I feel like nowadays I've got a way more healthy relationship with it where I can like bring it out if I need to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, to be honest, I, I don't think... I don't think it's about completely getting rid of that definition of masculinity either. I think it's not having it define your every action and thought, you know? So I think yeah. that's where I am with it now. And there are some places where it seems to make a lot of sense. Like if you're still playing football, there's that kind of lads mentality and that can feed in positively in teamwork and you all being united in how you behave. Mm. Or um, dealing with criticism, for instance, in a football environment, let's mm-hmm. say, you need very thick skin. Um, and it's interesting you say that because I was such a keen footballer until about the age of, yeah, the same age, basically. I was playing football out there in the States and that was the last time I played football properly. Mm-hmm. Football had defined my life and I think in many ways given me coping strategies as a kid growing up and as a teenager. I lost it. Like, I couldn't even... Something that I, that just, I find easy that just came to me. Like, I couldn't do it anymore. It felt like... I can't really explain it. Whenever... I went to play, I felt like naked, you know, like I thought everyone could see every little mistake I was doing and mm-hmm. it was so strange. Um, and now it's you... interesting, you, sorry, it's interesting you say because literally on Thursday I'll be going to like football training for my old club for the first time in like six years or something. So for me, again, it's like the full circle. Thing. Yeah, you know that's incredibly symbolic. Like, yeah, it is for me. Really cool. Yeah. And do you think you'll be able to go back as you now, as the authentic you, rather than slipping back into Oh, 100%, yeah. That's good to yeah. hear. Yeah. Because I think so much of it is about being conscious, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you, Kate and me, we've both had plenty of experience of therapy, and that's what a lot of that is, is ultimately becoming more conscious mm-hmm. um, of yourself. And that way you're... Totally agree. Yeah, that way you're empowered to make choices about who you want to be and how you want to present yourself. I think as men, a lot of this can be subliminally put on us. We don't even Mm realise we're putting on a facade because it's so normalised in our culture. And that's quite scary. So in terms of your perspective of the other side of it, Kate, did you, were you able to see that with your dad growing up? Were you able to see that he was acting a certain way and putting on potentially a masculine facade? Yeah, I mean, you're always aware of like the various different guises of his personality Mm -hmm. and there were sides that people external to the family didn't 
ever see and that we weren't to talk about and now this wasn't ever like explicitly said to me oh I also want to stress my dad was in no way violent because obviously that goes hand in hand a lot of time with alcoholism he wasn't he was a depressive alcoholic he could be very sharp with his tongue but not like physically violent yeah so it was just a kind of subconscious learning that there were different different moods and different ways that he would behave and you had to respond differently in those different scenarios and not really tell anyone about it. So does that answer the question? I think so. It's just interesting because obviously you were so close to him. I was, but I also wasn't because you can't really get that close to someone like that. Yeah. Um, Particularly as the youngest, I was the least able to achieve a kind of adult relationship with him. So by the time I was a teenager, Mm -hmm. which were the last few years of his life, obviously I didn't know that at the time, he, could, he didn't know how old I was. He couldn't remember what I was studying at school, like stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I was very close to him in a sense. And weirdly, a lot of like our closest times would be like when he was a bit drunk and I'd just be sitting talking to him because it, sometimes they were the times when he was the most sort of like approachable. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they absolutely weren't. Don't get me wrong, but, but sometimes they were. Um... I think something I've just thought about, which I think has come out a lot in this conversation, is this sense of like identity. And I think that a lot of what we've been talking about is kind of, like we said earlier on, trying to be this image of something that you feel like you should be and then not quite being able to achieve that and continuing to put pressure on yourself. And then like with my dad, who's got all these various different, had all these various different moods and Mm -hmm. ways of being, and I think what you said about like how, what you learn in therapy is a lot of times kind of be conscious of who you are. Going back to what I said at the beginning about not really having a sense of one fixed identity, a part of, I think, what I've learned in coping is to accept various, like a spectrum of all the kind of things that you can be. Does that make sense? Like, so accepting that some days you'll be this personal some, that could change from hour to hour even. And I don't mean, you know, I'm going to do just loads of really immoral shit and be like, it's fine, that's just who I am. Quite the opposite. Like, you kind of, I think, the more you accept who you are, which can include various different aspects, the more likely you are to kind of repeatedly behave, I think, in a, in a more reliable way. I know what you mean, because it's a a funny trick of mental illness. You can start to feel that um, when you're struggling, you're not being yourself. Yeah. And it's uh, reconciling that that actually is a part of you. And it's not just um, a part of the you you need to see. To some extent, you need to also prioritize that because Mm -hmm. it's when you're at your lowest, you need the looking after. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the stigma can be internalized and we berate ourselves for feeling bad. And we're the only uh, mm. species of animal that can do that. We can feel anxious about feeling anxious. <laughs> and that doesn't get us anywhere. Yeah, totally. And ironically, all the time that you're trying to get back to who you were or trying to be something, that very action, I think, is killing off the very best thing uh, or the, the things that you most enjoy about who you are so for instance mm-hmm. Richard football just that just got killed because you were yeah I couldn't accept that if I, yeah I couldn't accept that if I was going to play I might not be as good as I used to be mm-hmm. you see what I'm saying um, and I think just to tap into what you're saying I think it's a great point Kate about having this uh, almost like this ideal self that you're only going to be better once you like tick all the boxes of your ideal self or at least in my experience anyway and that was one of the big barriers to me but it's like this this self that kind of exists half in the past and half in the future it doesn't exist at all obviously mm. um, but I found with my experience like the longer I um, had experience with mental health um, the more sort of unrealistic this ideal person got mm-hmm. if you know what I'm saying and the, the chasm between who I felt Mm. I was and who I thought I needed to be in order to like be on track and I won't feel better unless I'm on track and you know you start almost like backward rationalising well you do start backward rationalising how you feel Um, and for me that was one of the biggest ways like you say you start beating yourself up I say I'm letting myself down you know 
I'm not where I need to be. I'm not where I need to be going. Um, and the, the cycle would just continue. Yeah, you make it harder for yourself. And that's why it's so important that people feel able to speak up because otherwise they, they internalize this. They turn it into criticism. And it's easy to build up because we've talked a bit about um, this sort of idea of like coming out about mental health and mm. admitting to it. Um, but it's easy if you don't do that to turn criticism inwards and decide that people aren't going to accept you or people are, you know, because we've all heard the things, we've all heard the awful things people say about mental health. You know, you're depressed. Mm-hmm. They say, oh, why can't you just cheer up? Mm-hmm. And you can internalize these things too. So then by the time you actually um, decide you're going to talk to someone about it, you may have built up this certainty that people will never accept you. Mm-hmm. And it's not true. And that's certainly not been my experience with this podcast. People mm-hmm. have been far more indifferent than they have um, negative. You know, yeah. it's, it's far lower on that spectrum. The amount of people as well that now I'm older have also felt comfortable to either talk to me or who I've just come across. You've Like everyone has, I, I think that's kind of where we're coming now in general in terms of our approach to like dealing with mental health issues. It's almost as, it's as, um, oh, what's the word? It's as common as physical ailments. Everyone's like had a doctor's appointment. Everyone's had a cold. Everyone's had whatever. And I'm not mm-hmm. suggesting that if you have mental health issues, because there's such an array of them and varying spectrums of severity, um, that they're the same as having a common cold. It's not. But we can all understand what it's like, and we're all likely to feel depressed at some point in our lives. Now, mm-hmm. for some people, like I guess all of us in here, that's been more of a chronic condition. Um, but yeah, it's it's crazy that it's just to this point been approached in such a, a separate way to physical health. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, the two sides of the same coin, as, as as far as I can tell, and that was the ultimate realization for me. And perhaps being uh, like learning that I was physically ill, though not to the extent that I was told. Um, maybe for me, right then, I made that separation, and you know, I saw it from the outset. Um, as as a rather sort of physical, mechanical uh, issue, right? You know, I I've got all these physical ailments. Therefore, if I tick all these boxes, my man, you know, I'll feel all right. Mm-hmm. Um, the more I, the more I'm getting older now, and the more I'm learning, the more I'm aware about it all. Um, these I find that some of the most effective things to manage mental health um, are actually also the most simple, like eat right, sleep right do some exercise you know like and for me um that reinforces this much healthier interpretation that i've got now where it is all connected the mental the Mm -hmm. physical even the spiritual or whatever you want to want to call that you know they all sort of fit in together and you can't tackle mental health in silos you have to take like a joined up approach can i jump in quickly just because on that note and i do agree with all of that that they're all great lifestyle factors to addressing your health mental health issues but given that we're talking particularly about the issue of shame and like repressing those issues i just want to say like you I, if you need medication if you need help mm. like there's no shame in that oh absolutely yeah it was one of the best decisions i've made i know that you weren't saying that but i just i just feel like sometimes i just want to hammer that home like people think that often there's a lot of shame in having to admit that you need chemical yeah. chemical balances there's a big stigma well. in that as well and there just shouldn't be you know no one is no one is shaming people that need insulin for their diabetes right yeah no one is shaming people buying paracetamol you know it's it's not logical i can't even think of a way to make sense of how little it makes sense mm. so <laughs> in terms of then talking more proactively about mental health, I think this seems a good place to bring in um, the work you guys do with Index and just trying to be a more progressive medium in general. I think young people, especially um, ones who might be interested in getting involved with a progressive media organisation, um, are going to be aware, or more aware perhaps, than, than Joe Blogs and mental health, right? Um, and I, I guess I can say that Pretty much everyone in the team, I think, has got 
experience of mental health. And most importantly, everyone's got a very um, open attitude and just a smart attitude towards mental health. So basically, editorially, strategic point of view, um, we share very similar goals to you. We're trying to normalise it more than any film. That's, that's what I love about learning about Index. It's very much trying to include things in the conversation like mental health because it should be in our conversation everywhere. So mm-hmm. you're going into creating that business with that awareness. You're not just there to um, to just sell stories. You're there with a certain ethos behind it. And I think that's so important. So I definitely recommend our listeners to take a look at Index. What's the link for that? Um, the website is index.media. Great. Simple. And I'll drop a link to that in our description as well. There was an article I particularly liked called Employers, Here's How to Create a Culture That Empowers Employees to Talk About Mental Health that I read recently. Yeah, so that was written by... Um, one of our writers called Claire Bonet, who works in HR and she's fantastic and a massive feminist and very switched on in terms of the actual like infrastructure necessary for, you know, people to like thrive in the workplace regardless of where they're coming from in terms of their mental health. Cool. Grand. All right. So we are unfortunately out of time. So we will leave that there. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having us. If you haven't already heard, we've started a petition to make mental health education mandatory in all schools. If this is something that you're passionate about too, and you'd consider signing such a petition or even just reading about it to learn more, you can find it by visiting bit.ly slash mental petition. The link for this is also in the description. Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday and remember, you are enough.